The Rare Patient Advocacy Summit is the can't-miss event of the year for rare disease stakeholders. The summit is the largest gathering of rare disease patients, advocates, and thought leaders worldwide. Join Global Genes October 3rd and 4th at the Hotel Irvine in Irvine, California, to take advantage of this opportunity to connect and learn from more than 100 experts in rare disease. For more information or to register, go to www.globalgenes.org forward slash 2018 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. When Muriel Finkel's uncle became unable to live alone because of amyloidosis, a rare condition in which misfolded proteins accumulate in organs throughout the body, he moved in with Finkel and her husband. As a caregiver, she struggled to understand his condition and medical needs. After his death in 2003, she co-founded amyloidosis support groups to provide peer group support to patients, caregivers, families, and friends of those touched by the life-threatening disease. We spoke to Finkel about her own experience as a caregiver, what led her to establish the organization, and what she'd like others to understand about the challenges caregivers face. Muriel, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. We're going to talk about amyloidosis and your own experience as a caregiver for someone with a condition and your work to support patients and caregivers of those patients. Let's start with amyloidosis itself, though. What is it? How does it manifest itself? And how does it progress? Well, there's different types of amyloidosis, and it is an organ system disease caused by deposits of amyloid protein fibrils. And that sounds very complicated and medical, so what we can simplify it and say that in the acquired type, the A, what's known as the AL primary type or light chain type, a plasma cell in the bone marrow goes rogue and decides to make amyloid rather than just being a normal antibody, and it uh, spreads amyloid throughout the bloodstream, and then wherever the bloodstream goes, whatever organs it decides to visit, it deposits amyloid fibrils, and they all cling together and gunk up the organs. So that's that's one type of amyloid. The, the more commonly diagnosed as of right now is that AL-acquired type. Then there's another type. There's a hereditary type. Those same proteins that gunk up organs, but the bone marrow is not responsible for making that. That's the liver making what's called TTR, transthyretin, which is a normal process in everyone's body. But for some reason, the transthyretin goes rogue and makes amyloid fibrils. I'm simplifying this a lot, but I do want to make sure that whoever hears this, you know, can understand it, and it can be pretty overwhelming. And then there's other types of amyloid, but the TTR that I just mentioned coming from the liver, the hereditary form, and the acquired type are the two that most people are familiar with. There is another type that's becoming much more 
prominent and much more diagnosed now that people are living longer, and that's an age-related form of amyloidosis called, used to be called senile, now it's called wild type, because people are not senile in the traditional sense of the word, it just means that they're more elderly when they're diagnosed, and that type uh, also deposits, it's made in the liver, TTR, deposits amyloid in the heart, but it's not a hereditary condition, it's just happens, and we're seeing that more and more as people live longer. Your experience with amyloidosis came as a caregiver for your uncle. He, he was living in Florida, and you were in the Chicago area. How did you come to care for him? Well, uh, Uncle Norman was only 20 years older than me, and he was my mother's baby brother, so we were very close growing up, and because he lived in Florida, during the summertime, he would come and stay with us. Um, to, you know, keep cool, and he would live with us. So he gradually became my husband's best friend. He was always my best friend, and along with a great uncle and kind of a father figure and everything in between. So when he did get the diagnosis of amyloidosis, it was just an easy thing to say, let me take care of you, because he did not want to go in a home or anything like that. And what was the progression of the disease for him? It was pretty bad. He was kind of a worst-case scenario because he was diagnosed with it. it. It involved his heart, his liver, his kidneys, spleen, nervous system, every organ that can be attacked pretty much with, with the amyloid he was attacked with. So because of that, uh, he ended up being on dialysis when his kidneys failed. He was on oxygen. His heart wasn't working well. The neuropathy affected his uh, his walking very badly, so he was in a wheelchair. So he was pretty, his quality of life was pretty lousy. And as a caregiver, what was the impact of his disease on you? You know, it was horrible to see a man who had been in the armed services, who lived a very enjoyable single life, to see him become a patient, to see him become... Um, not the man he was, for lack of a better term, and, 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 and to see him be dependent on my husband and me rather than the independent person he'd always been. It was it was very hard on all of us. Your uncle had very specific wishes as you and your husband cared for him among not having to go to a home. How challenging was it to meet his various wishes and still act in what you thought were his best interests? It was very challenging. I was not a great cook. I'm still not, but I think I'm better. And because he's been in the armed services, um, he was used to having a different meal every night of the week for a month. So that was actually the, the most difficult challenge, was not duplicating meals for 30 days, not duplicating if I had hamburger for lunch. He didn't want a meatloaf for dinner because in his mind they were both the same food. So it was comical. And it was a learning experience for me, and uh, so that was a that was a challenge. It was a comical challenge, but that was definitely a challenge for me. Was the feeding part, giving up, you know, taking him to to, to the hospital to the doctor was was a challenge as well because we had to do that quite frequently back then. And uh, luckily, my husband and I own our own business, so I didn't have to ask permission to leave. So we were, but we were able to do that. We were able to stay home with him. A lot. We were able to get a caregiver to come in during the day, so we didn't have as many challenges as most caregivers have that that aren't able to bring in a caregiver. 
you've written about caring for your uncle and his death, and it, it seems you did so much for him and did so much to meet his wishes. But when I read of your caring for him, one of the things that's so striking is these feelings of guilt you express. Where does the guilt come from, and is this something common among the caregivers you talk to? Yes. Uh, we call it the woulda, coulda, shoulda, or woulda, coulda, shoulda syndrome or something like that. We've given it our own name. Um, when you lose your patient, as many of us who have the sicker patients do lose our patients, when that happens, you, you, you feel guilty. You think you're responsible. I thought I was responsible. I shouldn't. You know, and, and I've talked to others, and they feel the same way. I should have taken, insisted he go to a different hospital or a different doctor. I should have um, made his quality of life better. That when, for instance, my uncle was on dialysis, was on a very strict di- diet, which you know you learn the process when you go through it. And one of the things he had to cut out of the diet was phosphorus, and we found that phosphorus was. La- all tomato products are laden with phosphorus. Of course, everyone's favorite food is pizza, right? And pasta with red sauce. And that's made with tomatoes, which is high in phosphorus. I took this very literally. I wanted my uncle to live. Um, I wasn't thinking so much quality of life as I was, you know, the fact that I wanted him to live. I was being rather selfish. And I can remember one time he wanted Thousand Island dressing and a salad. And I said, no, uncle, you can't have the Thousand Island dressing. There's tomato in there, and to this day, it bothers me that I never had let him have that Thousand Island dressing. That's the kind of guilt. It sounds silly, but it, it, it's hard. You started the amyloidosis support groups after your uncle's death. At that point, it would seem you might be in a position to move on from the disease. What led you to create this, and what was the intent of the ASG? I don't think my intent when we started it was anything terribly altruistic. People seem to think it was, and I I don't know what the intent was. I think it was just trying to heal myself. And so I met with other people who were walking the walk of amyloidosis and, and we met in Dallas, Texas. I'm a Chicago girl. I'd never been to Dallas, Texas. So we went, we met, and the, 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 I can't, can only describe it as the joy we all had, the high we got from meeting others with the disease and from, you know, sharing. And then when I told other people in the amyloidosis world about it, they said, I want a meeting too. I want a meeting too. And that, so that first year I was flying to 12 different cities running amyloidosis support group meetings. So um then it's then it was it was I was feeling good. I was feeling much better. Every time I did a meeting, I could have flown home with an airplane. I was feeling really good. I, and I and seeing other people how much it helped other people was making me feel good. So I guess you could still say it was selfish because I was feeling good helping other people. It was making me feel better. It was a healing process for me to make other people feel better and I guess it just kind of grew to be one giant healing process now 15 years later I'm still healing and why would you say you continue to invest your time and energy into supporting amyloidosis and 
caregivers of the disease? Well, patients and caregivers, we find that I, I did not know that much about the disease, and I feel like if I had known more, I could have helped my uncle more. I don't want other people to do what I did or make the mistakes I made. They'll make their own, but not mine. So my concern is that they are educated, because if they're educated, they're empowered, and they will hopefully make the right decision for themselves if they're the patients or for their patients if they're the caregiver. I don't want anyone to say, I would have, I should have, I could have. I want them to just do it all right. Now, what would you like people to understand about the challenges that caregivers face? Um, it's very difficult to um, to share. You can't share it with your patient, of course. You have to put up a, a, a front in front of your patient. I've always found that, you know, you say people cannot hear you crying in the shower. That was my little place to go. And I, and, and I tell other caregivers that, you know, that, but I also, there is a way to find joy out of making your patient happy. It's sort of like an occupation, so to speak. You know, today I'm, what can I do to make my uncle happy? And so, and I didn't learn that until it was almost too late that, that, that my goal was to make Uncle Norman happy, and when he was happy, I was happy. Again, back to the selfish part. I'm making myself happy. But um, so, but it, I think that, you know, if caregivers look at it, it's, if the better their patients do, the better they will feel, and the better their patients will do physically, emotionally, and that's a satisfaction in itself, then it, it's a win-win for everyone. Now that you've been away from your experience for all these years, as you look back at it, is there something that you'd like caregivers to understand about caregiving that they may not always be able to see when they're in the midst of struggling with the, the various demands they face? They're going to lose their, well, I lost my a certain relationship with my uncle, um, he started to see me as his nurse, his doctor, his caregiver. Stopped seeing me as the fun niece that I was. And I guess I would have to say that I stopped seeing him as the person he was in my life. I, I, I did not see him as a burden, thank heavens. But I did see him as a, a very huge responsibility and I think somehow there must be a way to work at it so that you can still see each other as the people they were and I, I don't know what the trick is to that but th there must be a way of doing that. Muriel Finkel, president of the Amyloidosis Support Groups and 2018 Rare Champion of Hope nominee. Muriel, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. 
You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.